0: I have to tell you there is nothing that bothers me more than f- to hear people calling me or any other Muslims moderate. I find it to actually be offensive. Mm-hmm.
1: Listening to the Religious Socialism Podcast, hosted by the Democratic Socialists of America. I'm Sarah New, and on this podcast, I interview faith leaders and politics and social justice on a monthly basis. So I know for the past three episodes, we've been interviewing a lot of Christians. I get it. We know our bias here, and we're actually trying hard to broaden the scope and talk to people of different faiths. So actually, if you have any recommendations of whom we should interview, reach out to us on social media or on Religious Socialism. .org/podcast. But to begin with, I'm really happy to bring to you guys my interview with Dr. Debbie Almatasser, who is kind of a badass. She is an educator, a 25-year veteran of the New York City public school system. She's taught, trained teachers, and served as a multicultural specialist and diversity advisor. She's also a leader in the Muslim and interfaith community. Um, she serves as the board president of the Muslim Community Network, and she was a, f- a featured speaker at the 2016 Democratic National Convention. She's the founder and CEO of Bridging Cultures Group, incorporated a consulting service specializing in cultural proficiency and academic support. She's also th- the founding and former principal of the Khalil Gibran International Academy, a school which was spotlighted at the New York Times and other press for some real controversy, which we'll get into later. Lots of shenanigans. So Devin, my producer, and I went to her home in Brooklyn a few months ago, and we just sat on her front porch and talked with her about her life story, basically, uh, about her growing up in a pretty white neighborhood in Buffalo uh, as a child of Yemeni immigrant parents, uh, about her religious awakening when she came to New York City in her 20s, uh, about 9-11, and Donald Trump, and what she's done in the community in the wake of those events and uh, her observations, and the kind of dumbfounding controversy she found herself in when she founded the Khalil Gabron International Academy in 2007. A school, which, by the way, for those of you who live in New York, is actually right by the BAM theater in the Atlantic Avenue subway stop. So, hope you enjoy. Let's get to it. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Debbie, and letting us into your home. We're seated in the very front of your porch. Yes, I guess, this more is or less. our sunroom. Your sunroom. <laughs> it's a very nice day. outside. Yes. I, I couldn't help but notice you have an uh, American flag mm-hmm. waving outside your home. Is there a particular reason you chose to kind of plant that there? Um, sure. The reason that we have
0: um, an American flag hanging outside of our house is because I actually have family members who serve in the military, and also in law enforcement. And so this is really to honor their service and to also show um, how deeply integrated my family is in the United
1: States. And I understand your family, you specifically moved from Yemen to Buffalo Mm -hmm. when you were three years old. Was that the first wave of migration with your family? You had extended family already in New York So that was
0: actually my father chose to live in Buffalo, New York, but his brothers who came um, before my mother and I actually migrated and lived in New York City in Brooklyn in the 1960s. And they actually all opened up restaurants. So for those people who live in Brooklyn, in the downtown Brooklyn area on Atlantic Avenue and Court Street, there were at least eight or nine restaurants that were attributed to my family.
1: One of my favorite cafes is Yemen Cafe. On uh, that's Atlantic. the only
0: one left. <laughs> that's the only one left. That is the only one left of all of the incredible, amazing restaurants that were open. Wow. Um, in the 70s and 80s, and this
1: is a kind of random aside, but one of my favorite stories of eating at Yemen Cafe was once we were seated, and we were uh, this white van pulled out, and these lamb carcasses were just being hauled over people's shoulders as they. Carried them to the basement, and then for the sake of propriety, they had this white sheet that they just kind of put up on the side so that uh, pedestrians wouldn't be too horrified by <laughs> seeing these. I mean, you saw the head; it was like the full body. It was just skinned, and I was like, "Wow, this is how I know my the lamb eating right now is is quality." <laughs>
0: yes, and it's it's being brought into the store. Yeah.
1: Yep, f- fresh. How mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about what you do now in the Muslim Community Network and why you do what you do?
0: Sure. So I am the board president of the Muslim Community Network, a nonprofit here in New York City that works um, to build bridges of understanding between Muslim New Yorkers and the larger New York City communities. Our civic engagement work relates to the work that we've done to end the NYPD Muslim Surveillance Program, to more recent educate the Muslim community on the Muslim ban and also provide them a space to have their voices heard through all the various organizing that we've been able to do, the Know Your Rights work, um, and what have you, to really help Muslim New Yorkers feel a part of the American fabric.
1: And I'm sure your job has gotten a lot more busier since January of this year. Oh,
0: absolutely. My job got much more intense as of November 9th.
1: November 9th, Uh, that's true. (laughs) How has everything since Trump's election affected you, maybe more personally? Um. Um, You know,
0: since the election, and this was even prior to the election, just watching the presidential race, and the way that was going, I started to feel sick in my stomach mm. in terms of like the the blatant racism and bigotry that started to erupt across the country. Where people just had just the right, the, you know, the right to feel like they can say and do whatever they want versus at times where you see people censoring themselves because it wasn't the politically correct thing to do. And so when I started to see this happening, I realized that we had a lot of work to do. And so in December of 2015, I made a conscious decision that in June of 2016, I was going to leave my public education uh, job to simply just start focusing on doing community advocacy work and cultural diversity and proficiency work um, with schools, with corporations, companies, and organizations, because I felt that, you know, there was a huge rift that began to to show itself. You know, you had people who were running for the highest position in the United States who were saying anti-Muslim things Mm -hmm. that basically every time something anti-Muslim was said, we saw it followed by, Hate crime incidents to Muslim Americans on a national
1: level. So you're saying that was an escalation really starting a few years ago. I mean, obviously the real escalation was post 9-11, but mm-hmm. got it. Uh, just before we kind of get more into current day stuff, I, I noticed in one of your interviews with the New York Times, I think you said, where your family taught you to when you came to America to kind of stay silent and you know, not draw attention to yourself, mm-hmm. and that you're wearing a hijab now, but that was not something that you did necessarily up until your 20s when you moved to New York. Mm-hmm. So, I guess, could you talk me through what it was like to grow up in Buffalo? Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, given that type of cultural Yeah, you know? you know, with any new
0: immigrants that come to the United States, they come into the United States and, and sort of have to figure out their role in society. And one of the things that Um, I remember, you know, my dad always saying to us, now you're in America, you're an American, you, you know, you need to be like everybody else, this is your new home, this is why we're here. And it was only till middle school that, you know, when I came home and I was talking to my parents about a boy asking me to go to a party, and that's when my dad first introduced me to our culture and Islam, and he's like, well, you know, we don't do that kind of stuff. You know, that's not a part of our culture. And it was then that I started to sort of like understand, okay, then we're not really like everybody else. We are a bit different. But it wasn't necessarily that my culture made me feel different or my parents reminding me about my culture, but I was always made to feel different by my teachers, by my peers. I remember as early as second grade where one Christmas break, a mutual friend of the family got married and decided to have a henna party. And my mother took me with her, and all the women were doing henna on their hands, and everybody was encouraging me to do it. And I remember being afraid to do it because I didn't know how long it was going to take to come off. And so I asked a couple of the, the aunties, you know, if I put it on, how long do you think it'll stay on me? And they're like, oh, don't worry, it'll be it'll come off in a week, you know, 10 days. And I was calculating like the whole Christmas break of, okay, if I do it now, by the time school starts up again, it'll probably be off. So I took the leap of faith at that point and had the henna put on my hands. Two weeks passed. The henna was still on my hands. I went to school. I'll never forget this. I went to school and all the kids did not want to touch me. Oh, wow. They didn't want to did sit they next you had to a me. Disease or something yes, your they skin. thought I yeah. had some kind of disease and they were all whispering and carrying on and then the teacher realizes something was going on and then the kids told her that I had some stuff on my hands and i didn't have the i didn't have the words to explain to her what it was like i kept saying to her it's henna but she didn't even know what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, if you say henna, everybody knows. She probably what thought henna
1: it was is. the name of a new disease. <laughs> Skin disease. <laughs> <laughs> something.
0: <laughs> so rather than than her sort of like, you know, looking at my hands and realizing that it must be something cultural or whatever. And to penalize the other kids, she penalized me. And mm. she made me go to the bathroom to wash my hands. And I was explaining to her that it uh, just can't come I, off. Yeah, well. And um, she didn't want to hear that. I went to the bathroom, washed my hands, came back. It was still on. And she was so furious that the fact that it was still on my hands. And at that point, it was like right before lunch, The kids were all going to lunch, and she insisted on taking me to the bathroom and washing my hands. And then when she saw that it wasn't coming off at that point, she she let the situation go. And I tried to explain to her what it was, and she just didn't understand. And so those are some of the experiences Mm -hmm. that I experienced growing up, which were really painful. Because, you know, the henna was to celebrate the marriage, you know, the union of two people, And then it became, for me, something that was just, was seen as punitive, was seen as something that I shouldn't have done.
1: How did your parents react when you told them what happened?
0: When I went home and I told my parents, um, they were upset and they were, they felt hurt for me and, you know, but my parents were not, they didn't know like their rights as, as parents coming from the Middle East, parent this I see this across the board from parents in the Middle East to South Asia, the Far East, you know even some Caribbean countries that whatever the teacher says, that's it. you have to follow and you have to you have to listen and the parents will take the word of, of the teacher, mm. the principal. but there were so many microaggressions that I experienced growing up and, and other Arab and Muslim children also mm. experienced. They sadly have effects on us even when we are grown adults. Of
1: course. To fast forward a little bit, you moved to New York Mm -hmm. in your 20s. And if I recall correctly, Mm -hmm. around that time you start to decide to choose to put on Mm -hmm. your job and kind of step more into your faith. What was that process and decision-making process like? You know, when I
0: moved to New York City, I was truly inspired by the vast diversity I loved being in the city and standing on a street corner and hearing like five, six languages spoken. I loved seeing women wearing saris. I loved, you know, seeing women wearing their ethnic, you know, clothing from wherever they were. And I was just like, wow, this is really, really incredible. And at that time, I was also in school and just doing a lot of questioning of, you know, my purpose in life. Why am I here? What faith tradition do I need to think about? What faith tradition do I want to raise my children? The way that I actually came to Islam was through the African-American Muslim experience. I was walking on Atlantic Avenue where I saw three African-American women walking down the street in their long, beautiful gowns and wearing their hijabs to the front, and they just really were beautiful walking towards me, and people didn't stare at them. I had no issue with their presence, and as they got closer to me, I stopped them and I asked them if they were Muslim, and they told me they were. We started a conversation, and I told them that them walking towards me was just really absolutely beautiful, and I was very inspired and moved by them. They asked me what faith I was, and at that point I said to them, my parents you know, are Muslim, but we weren't really practicing. I am I don't know. I'm just culturally Muslim. At that point, I was wearing jeans and a t-shirt. My hair was out, and um, and they said to me, they said to me, you know, we're going right now to um, to a local mosque where we have actually these Saturday classes where women who just became Muslim come and they learn and develop a better understanding about the faith tradition. You know, you're welcome to join us. And at that point, I looked at them and I looked at me the way that I was <laughs> dressed, and I said, Well, I don't know if I'm dressed appropriately. And they're like, No, just come. There's no judgment. Come, you'll be welcomed. So I simply joined them and and I always tell kids and and people when I tell this story, don't ever go anywhere with the strangers. But there was something about these women that I felt a sense of connection and I, you know, a yearning and wanting to learn from them. So six months into my continuing to go and learn in this circle and and be around these incredible women who were Latina, African American. There were Asian women. There were Caucasian women. It was just really, really fascinating. And I remember six months into my going, I came home one day and I told my husband, "I've decided I'm going to become Muslim." And he looked at me like I was crazy. He's like, "What <laughs> You're do you mean converting you to are. Islam?" <laughs> yeah. And he, I said, "I'm, I'm going to convert." And he's like, "But you already are." I'm like, "No. Now I'm going to practice. You know, this is what I'm feeling. This is what my heart tells me. This is what." I believe I need to do and, and I'm going to do it. And I have to tell you, it was one of the most difficult things to actually wear the headscarf. Mm. You know, you're growing up, you're not covering your hair. And then to make that transition wasn't easy. And I remember starting off first, you know, covering half my hair, wearing it to the back, but all my hair in the front was showing or just draping over my shoulders. And then one day I just woke up And I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, okay, you either have to do it all the way or just don't bother. And you have to really think about, like, why are you doing this? And then I came to the conclusion that the very reason that I personally was striving to do it was uh, uh, an addition to my praying five times a day and my fasting was also to have this as another form of worship. My sacrifice to to my God to simply say, I can do this. And the reason I'm doing it is to express my love and my dedication and my commitment to my faith.
1: I'm curious that the decisions you made and how to raise your children religiously, mm-hmm. given that maybe your husband was not exactly on the same page with you when you first announced your mm-hmm. decision to become Muslim. And then also your parents maybe are now surprised that their daughter is mm-hmm. praying five oh, times a day. And there's fast. an
0: interesting story about uh, yeah. my parents. <laughs> uh, so that year when I actually started wearing the hijab, I went back home to visit and my parents saw me in my hijab and my dad was like, oh, this is interesting. And so he told my mother, he said, you know, this is interesting that, she, you know, she's coming home and she's wearing this. Wonder what that's all about. What's the latest fad, you know, that she's into. <laughs>
1: <Nice>. <laughs> so it was an interesting. It's was ancient fad, actually. <laughs> yes.
0: It was interesting that um, that he called it a fad. But one of the things that, that came from that visit was I started to share with my sisters and with my mother how I was feeling, how I felt so much more tranquil, You know, I have this sense of connection to God and how important it was for me to share, to share what I was feeling. And um, a couple of years later, my mother began to wear, rather than wearing her hijab culturally, which was like just hanging around her shoulder or whatever, she started to wear it fully. My sisters also started to wear it. And then my dad, my dad came around and, I remember, I'll never forget the year that he went to make his hatch. And so mm. when I look back, you know, I'm just so grateful that I was able to sort of like inspire my family to reclaim their faith tradition.
1: Hmm. F- fast forwarding a little bit from, you, we talked about your 20s and it's go to Mm 9-11. So that's where I think you met Maxine, who, for those of you listening, is the head of the Religious Socialism uh, Working Group as part of DSA. Uh, I remember reading about how you were inviting hundreds of Jews and Christians to your home after Mm -hmm. 9-11. What what prompted that response when all this was happening? Yeah, absolutely.
0: So prior to 9-11, I was doing a lot of dialogue work. There was a project called the Dialogue Project, which was actually bringing Arabs and Jews and Christians together to talk about the the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And through that project, I developed a lot of relationships with people. And the day that 9-11 happened, sadly, everybody was, of course, scattered, and everyone will never forget that day. But on Thursday evening after 9-11, Rabbi Ellen Littman called me and said Debbie I want to invite you and any members of your community to come and share with us what what is happening in the Arab and Muslim community mm-hmm. just tell us what can we do how can we help and so at that point I called a number of the people that were going to the dialogue project with me who are Arab and Muslim and we went to the synagogue's garden where about maybe 70 to 80 people were sitting in a circle in that garden and there were two people, one who was um, an Israeli Jew and one who was a Palestinian Arab. They had met each other through the Dialogue Project, and they hadn't seen each other since 9-11. And so I remember that day so vividly, the two of them, you know, getting to that space and then, like, running to each other and giving each other this really strong, beautiful hug of support, and it was so emotional to see these two men embrace one another. And so, basically, you know, from that from that gathering, people were asking, "What can we do? How can we help?" We started an escorting system, where um, people signed up, and we matched them up with Muslim and Arab and South Asian families that needed the support. We started organizing events. And also I started to speak at other churches and synagogues. And one of the things that was a continual thing that that was being shared by people was, well, I, I don't know any Arabs or Muslims and I wish I did. So from that point on, I went home and I shared this with my husband on several occasions. And he's like, you know what? Why don't we do a gathering at our house? So on September 20th, we held a gathering here that we had over 200 people who came in We'd, this house yeah in our in our yard wow. in our porch we set up tables we had a kosher table with desserts and refreshments we had a regular table we had educational materials to help people better understand Islam and Muslims and then we invited all of our muslim friends to come And it was beautiful. We started, it was from 1 to 5 p.m. And it was just really, really amazing Mm. to see how many people.
1: Mm. You you mentioned the escort service. And Mm -hmm. it made me think about how post-election, that was something that was also, I think, being created for people going on the subway and Mm -hmm. who would sign up to be an escort. Mm -hmm. What do you see are the parallels between the what the Muslim community has to do now in this season versus what it has to do after 9-11? And maybe mm-hmm. what are some of the differences?
0: Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that's interesting, and I was actually quoted in an article. I think it was a Daily Beast. I don't remember. But I feel like everything that we went through or did um, in the aftermath of September 11th prepared us for where we are today. Mm-hmm. You know, 17 years ago, we didn't know what to expect and how to go about organizing and mobilizing and and coming to the mm-hmm. aid of community members. But here we are 17 years later, post the election, we sort of knew. And the one thing that I can say proudly that has been the most heartwarming and has been supportive in us being able to respond adequately to the time that we live in is the vast number of relationships that we formed, the coalitions that we formed. You know, all of those things came into play. The day after the election, I remember like 7 a.m. in the morning getting text messages, emails, calls from rabbis, ministers, ministers, community-based organization leaders, activists outside of the Muslim and Arab and South Asian communities simply saying, we're here, we're with you. Mm. If there's anything we could do, just let us know. And we simply at that point just came together. And one of the things that we did on November 9th was we held a uh, interfaith um, gathering outside um, in Washington Square Park from outside of Judson, where it was simply a sing-along and and an opportunity for people of faith to come together. We organized it in like five hours. We had close to a 1,000 people who were out there.
1: And Judson, for people who aren't familiar, is a church, actually. Yes,
0: Judson Memorial Church. Mm -hmm. We then made a conscious decision to open up the church and have the people sit and process what they were experiencing. And so the church the lab shul the Muslim community network and Judson coordinated these heart circles. And these heart circles were an opportunity for people to sit in small groups and process what they were feeling and what they were experiencing and how they were feeling about this and really helping them to to deal with this ordeal. And I remember that first day November 9th after the the visual in the park when we went in and I was sitting in a group where there was actually a minister and a rabbi. And the two of them were actually like bawling, Hmm. like bawling. And I was like, I felt horrible, you know, the night of November 8th. I felt horrible the morning of November 9th. And like my phone was ringing off the hook. I was getting text messages even from people within my community saying, what does this mean for us? What do we do? you know, are we gonna be okay? And I remember like trying to figure out how do I respond to these people and not show like how I was feeling. Mm. Like I felt if I showed them, you know, despair and hopelessness, that would make them even feel worse. And I was like, okay, you know, I had to pick up myself, you know, my boots straps and and say, We're gonna get through this and basically just talking to people and saying we're gonna get through this. There is wisdom behind this. Why this man won, why God willed it, we will see, but we need to be active, we need to be vigilant, and and we need to not despair. And so then on November 9th, I'm sitting in this circle, and I see these two grown leaders bawling, and them sharing with me what they were feeling, the despair that they were feeling, the betrayal that they were feeling, and I was like, oh my God, these are all the feelings that I'm feeling,
1: too. Hmm almost permission to feel yes. in a way publicly mm-hmm. and that you can, you can let down your guard a little bit. And yeah. Trust someone. It was so powerful. So powerful. It seems like that's one of the unique things, perhaps that spiritual spaces can kind of create room for, mm-hmm. um, you know, obviously there's the action and the organizing petition, but it's also this moment for like human to human connection, mm-hmm. and at least the value placed on that, which at least from my perspective, is one of the things that people of faith can bring to activism, and what have you, um, I, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about Caligabron International Academy. Mm-hmm. Sure. So the
0: I was approached by New Visions for Public Schools in 2005 to establish a school that would teach Arabic as a second language and possibly Hebrew. And so when we started to explore the idea of having both languages, we were... Instructed that those two languages were very difficult to learn and that we should go with one language. And the language that was recommended by linguist, scholar linguist, was to go with Arabic. In December of 2006, we finally submitted our proposal to the New York City Department of Education. We went into... Have our interview, and then, in February, they got back to us and told us that we were one of the selected um, eighty schools to open. So, in two thousand and seven, February, the school was announced in the New York Times with you know eighty other schools. And days later, the blogosphere went viral, and there were people who were writing positive things about the school, but there were a lot of people who were writing negative things. So they coined the school as um a homegrown madrasa, you know, a homegrown terrorism madrasa that was going to be actually indoctrinating kids. It was just awful the way that the school was portrayed um, negatively. And so uh, over the course of the months, the pressures continued to mount. You had Daniel Pipes, who wrote in the New York Sun an article called a, a Madrasa Grows in Brooklyn. You had others who were writing negative things about the school. And, you know, it was, an, it was a, an incredible time. So there were people who were fascinated and who were just like, oh, my God, this is so brilliant. This is so amazing. They were actually in the far larger number of people that we saw in support. And then the minority fringe voices who didn't want to see the school come forward were the ones that were actually getting the, the pulpit to, to spew their views. And it was really sad to see prominent people in New York City, such as um, Jeffrey Weisenfeld, who at that time was on the Board of Trustees of CUNY, and the JCRC, you know, take an active role against the school. And a number of others. Um, There were some 9-11 family members who were opposed. And basically, they were all organized and mobilized by a small coalition that called themselves the Stop the Madrasa Coalition. And so while all of this was happening, I was recruiting kids. I was buying books, buying furniture, doing everything, hiring teachers, everything you need to do to get a school up and running. And then in July, they found out that I helped inaugurate Arab Heritage Week. And they went to all of the Arab American Heritage events. And they went to the park event, the Arab American Festival. And they found an organization that had a table with T-shirts that said Intifada NYC. They took a picture of it. And then they did some research on the organization. They found out that the organization shared this office space with an organization that I was sitting on the board of. And they made this tenuous connection that I had something to do with the T-shirts. They put out a press release. The The press called the New York City Department of Education. At that point, they're like, there's no story. This is ridiculous. Everyone dropped it except for the New York Post. And the New York Post was gunning for me, and they had been wanting an interview for a very long time, and they weren't getting it. And so um, so they decided to do a story on the T-shirt, and they insisted on interviewing me. I refused. Then they contacted the DOE and gave the DOE questions, and they're like, you know, can you just respond to them, and we'll write our story. I compl- I answered the questions, sent them to the DOE, The person who was assigned from the press office to follow up didn't get a chance to put them together. It was 4.30, and she called me up, and she's like, we didn't get a chance, but, you know, let's get on the phone. Both of us will be on together. If there is anything offensive, I will make sure to jump in. We do the interview. There was nothing offensive. What they did was they took my words out of context and they minimize the historical context of the Palestinian Israeli conflict. So when we wake up the next day, we read the headlines, it was just awful how they portrayed me and minimize the historical context of the of the word intifada. And then you had some of the Jewish establishment like in an uproar, like, why didn't I condemn the word? Why did I engage in a conversation? And it was sad and unfortunate because I, it it wasn't the interview. I did not want to do the interview, and it wasn't about the T-shirts. It was simply, you know, to have a conversation because they wanted to interview me. And as much as I stayed away from that and didn't talk about that, sadly, it ended up being a, a terrible story that was took my words out of context. Long story short, by the end of the week, the DOE basically forced me out of my position, and it was the ultimatum of you resign or we're not moving forward with the school. And at that point, I did not want to see this historical institution that I had worked very hard with staff, with design team members to build to see not materialize, it was more for me to see history made. And it was also important, you know, for the 70 kids that had already been enrolled, for the eight teachers that had been hired, like where are all these people gonna go, mm-hmm. you know? And so it was one of the hardest decisions in my life to make, you know, I had no choice. And, and you know, it, I submitted my my letter of resignation, I waited till September, you know, after the school opened to try to, you know, speak to the chancellor and the mayor after the dust settled, and they did not return my calls. And at that point, a lot of people were disturbed by what happened in the city. I remember people calling me and emailing me and texting me because they knew that I just would not do something like that, that I wouldn't give in or... Cave in, And so on August 20th, organizers, civil rights groups, and activists organized a day in front of Gweed where, like, over 500 people came out. And, you know, there were people who were Jewish that had signs that said, I'm a Jew and I support Debbie Tasser." It was just really, really beautiful to see mm. the incredible number of people standing in support and solidarity. And so when I saw that sea of people coming out and supporting I went home and I just started thinking about oh my god I was I was unjustly wronged and what happened to me should have never happened to me and I had a conversation with my husband and I said to him I said I can't let this happen to other people I need to stand up for myself to make sure that this doesn't happen to anybody. And then uh, I was contacted by a number of lawyers. I settled with one lawyer, Alan Levine, who was amazing, and he represented me, and we went public about what happened in October. I had filed a lawsuit, and then an Equal Employment Opportunity uh, Commission. We also filed with them, and um, in 2010, they ruled in my favor that I was wrongfully removed based on ethnicity, nationality, and religion. And it was incredible. It was an incredible vindication to actually have. And, you know, from the start, it was always about really exposing what happened. It was never about the money or prestige, but I wanted, it was about the principle mm-hmm. of you don't let people do things like this.
1: Looking back now what happened between five or six all the way, in mm-hmm. 2010 what do you feel you learned from that experience I'm curious from a faith perspective
0: sure so um one of the things that I learned from that experience is you you truly know who your friends are when during that time like my real genuine really good friends who came out and supported me through thick and thin I knew who those people were and then those who didn't uh, I then at that point learned like, okay, those are not really friends. Mm. So that was one thing. The other thing that I learned was not to be naive and think that an institution would have your back because I really felt like everybody at the New York City Department of Education was 150% with me, which they were. But then when things started to to go downhill because of the mounting pressures, I saw people immediately cave in and pander and take the expedient position, where they basically betrayed me and and felt like, okay, well, this is the decision that's being made. We're all gonna file it. So, simply knowing that that institutions can play those kinds of roles. Mm-hmm. And um, and then the other thing that I learned was that I'm stronger than what I had anticipated. Hmm. When I look back and I think about what I had experienced, I dealt with it with grace and dignity. I could have had a nervous breakdown, but I didn't. I was very fortunate to circle myself with loving, wonderful friends and family members who really took care of me throughout that ordeal and who saw me through it. And so the fact that I was able to get through that, that experience holistically as a person is really amazing and just made me realize that I'm stronger than what I had ever anticipated that I would be.
1: It's also interesting to me hearing your condensed life story, the parallels and contrasts between- what you described in second grade Mm -hmm. where you had something unjust happen to you but because there wasn't that kind of social mirroring to say Mm -hmm. like this is unjust you kind of let it slide but then also on the flip side the power community can play in giving people permission to realize the fact that their dignity was violated in some way and then to take action Mm -hmm. so well that's kind of a cool Neat little arc. That's awesome. What I noticed, I uh, New York Times in particular, at least one of the angles it seemed like it took on the story was th- that you were someone who was trying to hold like a moderate space between, mm. be certain Muslim community members felt like you were too friendly with the A.D.L. and maybe certain mm. Jewish communities wanted you to like speak up more against the Intifada and that word. One, do you agree with that portrayal of you as a moderate bridge builder person? And two, do you feel it's harder to do that than to take a firm alliance with one way or another.
0: Well, you know, it's it was really, you know, it was really interesting at that time. Like I remember like there was a paper called Aramica, an Arab American paper where they actually wrote a piece about me. It was a terrible piece. I was on the front page of their paper and behind me was the Israeli flag. Mm. And I was like, "Oh, this is just crazy." Mm-hmm. <laughs> But you know, when all of that was happening and people were carrying on, I, I just simply let that discourse take its, take its course because mm. I refused to be dragged in to discourse that I knew was not going to get anywhere because all the people that were involved in it already dug their heels in the, in sure. the dirt and simply were not going to hear anything I had to say or anybody for that matter. My being coined as the moderate, I have to tell you, there is nothing that bothers me more than to hear people calling me or any other Muslims moderate. Hmm. I find it to actually be offensive. I see myself as a Muslim. You know, people have asked me, are you Sunni or Shia? And I refuse to answer that because I find like all of these labels are divisive and we need to to meet people where they are, respect them for who they are, and not judge them based on labels that we put on them or labels that they give themselves, but really give people the opportunity to to work with them and meet them for who they are.
1: Just to maybe push a little bit more, you do a lot of bridge-building work. Mm -hmm. I think we talked about the works of Jewish Mm -hmm. organizations, Christian organizations. Mm -hmm. I mean, has it ever been difficult or tricky perhaps to negotiate a relationship with an organization whose policies maybe you don't 100% disagree with, mm-hmm. whether it's a Zionist organization, mm-hmm. let's say, or mm-hmm. do you talk through that navigation? Sure,
0: sure. So, I mean, in the situation that I had experienced, what ended up happening with me where people were saying, oh, why didn't she condemn the word? That was the Jewish establishment saying, why didn't she condemn the word? Why did she explain the word? And tifada. You know, that was a litmus test, and so there are organizations that continually have this litmus test, and so those organizations that have this litmus test of whether we should work with this group or this person or not, I refuse to deal with any organization that has a litmus test.
1: You often talk about, and I feel people in your position you're sort of tasked with like a PR a little bit mm-hmm. of your faith, which is a tall order. Mm-hmm. And I notice you use what's like, you know, Islam is a religion of peace and not violence, and it's been hijacked by people who don't share my faith. That's an interesting parallel for Christian leftists and progressives to feel like, you know, f- we often talk about how the Christian right has hijacked our our faith. But aside from that, do you ever feel kind of tired of always having to be the spokesperson, always have to like, calibrate your language to make sure that people mm-hmm. understanding your words the right way. I'm mm-hmm. just curious how you feel about this kind of mantle put oh upon you Oh, my gosh.
0: So 17 years later, I have to tell you that um, it. Uh, I, am, I get offended when people call or say, well, why haven't the Muslims condemned this? And why haven't the Muslims done this? Mm-hmm. And I've gotten to the point where people have, called me or written me an email and say, you know, you saying this to me is very offensive. And I am offended that you feel a sense of obligation to tell me that I should be apologizing for someone or something that's happened that has not happened by me, the individual, or my faith tradition, but at the hands of a fringe group That does not represent me or my faith. Mm -hmm. And it's really unfair for you to basically put me in that position. We haven't seen that happen to Christians with Timothy McVeigh. We haven't seen that happen with any other faith tradition. And it's just unfair to put that burden Mm -hmm. on, on Muslim Americans
1: go back full circle looking back to who you're you were when you were in buffalo in three five ten d- do you still see some of that person in you i mean obviously you're the same person but it, it seems so different in some ways from the mentality mm-hmm. that you put yourself into and then second so follow up to that like what would you say to that girl now now that you have all this life was? oh wow yeah um, that's really a very
0: interesting ca- ca- question that you ask because I know that there are days like that I feel a sense of anxiety, a sense of fear, a sense of uncertainty, and those feelings are no different than the ones that I felt when I was 3, 5, and 15. Hmm. So those feelings remain consistent, and those feelings now translate into they develop from the fear of the time that we live in, the Muslim ban, the uncertainty, you know, the incitement of hate against Muslims. It's just really, really amazing. But one of the things that, you know, I I fall into this leadership position. I don't know how, but I am. And I think that one of the greatest traits that, that I have been blessed by God to have is actually resiliency. Hmm. I I feel at every turn of whatever happens, I have my moments of anxiety of despair of hopelessness, but then that r- resilience comes forward and um, and just, you know, overtakes me and and I'm able to get through whatever the issue is that we're dealing with. I guess the message that if I could give my that girl is just to to have faith in the process and to embrace those feelings and to and to embrace the process to be able to get through those things. Hmm. And that there is always there will always be a way to get out of whatever situation and you're not alone. And I think that that's like the biggest message that I can give myself or any young person is that you should never ever deal with anything by yourself. You should find people, circle yourself with with people that are like-minded and who will uplift you and who will support you and who will give you strength and empowerment versus remaining in isolation or encircling yourself with people who will bring you down,
1: and I think that's how God kind of shows up in the process, right? Oftentimes, yep. the prayer is to remove this pain or remove this obstacle, but what if the call is to be present and mm-hmm. through people? I think mm-hmm. it's something divine that happens. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Debbie. This was a thank wonderful you. conversation. Thank you for letting us into your home. And yeah, absolutely, my pleasure, my pleasure. Thank you. All right, have a great one. <laughs> so that was a conversation with Dr. Debbie Almentosser. It was a really interesting interview. Um, I was re- particularly struck when she said that being called a moderate Muslim is an offensive label to her because she sees herself as Muslim and all these labors are divisive. Now, I'm kind of curious, thinking about it now, whether she finds it offensive because the moderate label sometimes might imply a more diluted or toned down version of faith. It's almost like, yeah, we know you're religious, but you're not that serious about your religion, of course, because you're not like those religious extremists. The implication here, which I disagree with, is is that religion is only safe when it is moderate, uh, when it's toned down. And I think that tends to be a stereotype of people on the religious left, which is that our faith is more diluted. It's not as serious. It's basically wishy-washy. So I'm curious whether that's where she takes offense or... Maybe she just takes offense simply because, as she said, she doesn't consider fringe terrorist groups Muslim in any way. So it's not like they're bad Muslims and she's a good Muslim. It's just that they are not Muslims. So um, I also thought it was really helpful that she called out the double standard we have for Muslims versus other faith groups, especially Christians, which I super appreciate. She had written later an email. She said, you know, when I as Muslim and expected to apologize to take responsibility for an act by ISIS, let's say, I consider their act against humanity un-Islamic. And, you know, this is my country too. I want safety and prosperity for my family. So when people do this, expect us to apologize for ISIS, or, like, you know, write tweets saying, I condemn this, uh, they single us out and make us feel like outsiders. So, really appreciated her words of insight. In any case, if you're listening to this, you probably care about the future of the religious left in some way, so thank you, first of all, for listening. And second, if you really do care about it, you can help out the religious left at large by sharing our podcast on social media and rating us on iTunes because, because frankly unless we and the left are getting louder our voices are probably going to be drowned out all the time by the religious right so you know sharing our podcast I think is one way of going about that anyhow this is the religious social podcast it's produced by Devin Briskey I'm Sarah New connect with us on social media or you can connect with our working group on religioussocial.org thank you for listening Thank you.